This is episode 20 of Cinescope, and Vermont should be beautiful this time of year, all that snow. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Joshua Torrey to talk about one of our favorite Christmas films, White Christmas. Joshua, how are you doing? I'm doing very good, Chad. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you on. How about you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and all that kind of good stuff? I am a computer engineer in Austin, Texas for advanced micro devices. So I stare at computer screens all day for a living. And then in my free time, I blog at the Tory Gazette on theology, normally Christian theology, um, music. And when I, when I feel really innovative sometimes about art and how it relates to uh, Christians and the world around us. I think we met on Twitter via mutual friend TJ, is that correct? Yes, I know TJ from some other friends, actually, even. So it's like three circles removed. Right, tangled web, yada yada, something like that. <laughs> that That is social media for you. Yes. Definitely. So we've been talking on Twitter for a little while, and we see each other's views on films and whatnot. And so uh, I saw that, that just earlier this week or last week, you were watching White Christmas, and I decided, hey, how about you join me to talk about this movie? And you so graciously accepted. So here we are. Yes, I'm very excited. Me too. And with that, we'll just go ahead and jump right in. So we are talking about White Christmas this week. This movie was released on October 14th of 1954 and was directed by Michael Curtis, who I discovered was a lot more prolific a director than I expected. He directed the original The Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. He directed Casablanca, Angels with Dirty Faces, Yankee Doodle Dandy, and This is the Army. The script was written by Norman Krasna, Norman Panama, and Melvin Frank. And the music, of course, is by Irving Berlin, who is most known for his classic songs, such as Alexander's Ragtime Band, White Christmas, of course, Happy Holiday, There's No Business Like Show Business, God Bless America, I've got my love to keep me warm and putting on the Ritz. And that's in no particular order, but it's just a small sample of the immense catalog he has left us with over the years. This movie stars Bing Crosby, Rosemary Clooney, Danny Kaye, Vera Ellen, Dean Jagger, Mary Wicks, Johnny Grant, and there's a brief appearance by George Chikiris, who uh, he's only a dancer in this film, but he went on to become an Academy Award winner, and he played Bernardo in the West Side Story film adaptation. So uh, just a, a small sneak peek of somebody who would be bigger eventually. So Joshua, what was, you, what was your first experience with this movie? Um, so I'm pretty sure that I grew up watching this movie with my uncle. My uncle was a huge movie buff and had a tendency to watch old movies with us when we were at his house. And so I realized that I was very familiar with the music from White Christmas from an early age. But the first time I watched it, understanding that there was a story involved and it wasn't just about dancing, was just last week with my children. And it was like uh, revisiting an old friend. I was able to hum the 
songs and sing a couple of them almost note for note and word for word, which was kind of uh, scary for my children because they don't (laughs) normally hear me sing to movies. Right. That's actually pretty similar to my experience. You know, this is a movie that was around a lot when I was a kid. My family would watch it around this time of year all the time, and I never really was interested. I, I remembered the ending scene particularly when they sang White Christmas the second time as a group, and the, the back wall opens up and you see the snow. And so that's probably what I was most familiar with as far as this film goes. And I first watched it seriously, sat down with my family and watched it just a few years ago. I don't remember when specifically, but it wasn't too long ago. And I've loved it ever since. It it has become a staple Christmas film for me where I I have to watch it at least once every year or my Christmas season sort of just doesn't feel complete. Yes, my experience with Christmas movies is not a family tradition. And so this year we decided to attempt to start that. We watched it. Kids loved it. And we immediately turned around and bought it. They've actually asked to watch it again already. So that tells you everything you need to know about the future this movie has in our family. Definitely. And that sort of attests to its timelessness, too, that your kids are so willing to watch this film that is now, what, 60 plus years old. It's just a good, classic, sweet film. It's one of my favorite Christmas movies now. And in fact, it's actually a tradition for my grandmother to watch this film on loop whenever she wraps presents for Christmas every year. So she'll, she'll park herself in front of the TV and a table and all of her wrapping stuff. And as she wraps presents, she always has white Christmas playing and she'll watch it many, many times a year as she's getting that process done. And so, uh, it's, it's cool that she still enjoys this film so much. I still enjoy this film so much. You enjoy this film and, It just really attests to how timeless a film like this is. I agree. Moving on to sort of story stuff, it's totally non-complex. There aren't weird side plots. There's no weird side characters. It's pretty straightforward as far as the actual plot goes. It's about friendship and love and generosity. And it's an idyllic Christmas kind of movie, like love, friendship, generosity. That's what Christmas is about. And so watching this movie, you really feel in the Christmas spirit. I agree completely. I mean, there's, it's very predictable. Um, I think if you're wanting to use mildly derogatory language, it's, it's a little bit uh, cheesy and corny. The characters are, you know, there's no, there's no real shadiness. There's no real backbiting or, or even serious conflict. Everything, you know, in the movie is mistaken intent, but you, you realize as, as a viewer of the movie that everyone's really a good person in the movie. And so it communicates story of conflict and resolution and relationships without a lot of the negativity that you find as movies have progressed towards you know our more modern cinematography it's definitely no diehard christmas movie no and it's just a story between people it's not there's not a good guy there's not a bad guy it's just people living reacting to each other forming relationships with each other and i i think that makes for a really great film there doesn't need to be a bad guy for there to be conflict the conflict here like you said is uh misunderstood intent or lack of or even just miscommunication and uh, I, I think that works really well in its favor, that it, it's not trying to do too much here. It's it's just telling a story, and it's a simple story, and that's perfectly okay. Yes, I think it makes it more relatable. Real life, most of us experience conflict between people we know, we care about, we love, and we grow to love because of the conflict. 
And this encapsulates that and makes it, it's a human movie. It is endowed with the human spirit and relatableness. I agree. And the songs and the music in general are just delightful. I love that they take the time to slow down the story just to give us a visual and auditory treat where sometimes, yes, the song is progressing the story like uh, snow. Well, snow, not so much, maybe more like count your blessings, progressing the story and forming relationships in, in that scene. But a lot of the time we're just seeing slices of the show within the show. And I think that's great that they, they feel confident enough in their film that they sort of slow things down. Let us just enjoy the show. And so there's some great dance numbers in here. There's some great song and dance numbers in here. And uh, everybody puts on a great stage performance here within the movie. Yes, my my kids are actually all under the age of five years old. And the fact that they would sit down and sit through the entire movie watching it and, and paying attention is a testament to the the impact that those choreography scenes and the the songs have on the entertainment value of the movie it's not something that you have to be paying attention to every single word to understand how things are moving you get to just kind of sit back and enjoy it you're being entertained by great dancers and great singers and that's wonderful right and i i think part of the the sort of intensity of the scenes, the, the song and dance numbers in particular, is attributed to the color. You know, there's something about this movie where the colors are just incredibly vibrant and the, the picture is crystal sharp. And I'm not just talking about like HD quality, like Blu-ray or high definition streaming through Netflix. It, it's just a vibrant movie The from the blue in Bing Crosby's and Rosemary Clooney's eyes to the yellow of Vera Ellen's dance dress in the Abraham dance number or even just to the red of the costumes at the end of the film when they're all singing White Christmas on stage. It's just a colorful movie, and it, it really just sort of pops off the screen. Yes, the sets are gorgeous. I mean, it is a visually stunning movie for something that doesn't have... It's decades before the invention of CGI, and yet the time and effort spent to make sure that the costumes and the colors are picked out to contrast with one another so beautifully i mean it it carries over it's something that can stand the test of time because it is real it's it's done artfully and it's pretty incredible to watch definitely what else about the story do you like i like the fact that the story is simple um that the characters are given time to develop with each other as uh normal people and they don't get lost in the story. Sometimes a, a story can become so complex that the characters feel as if they're there to further the story, which has an agenda. And this is almost the opposite, where the story is almost dumbed down for us so that we can enjoy these characters interacting in situations and in ways that makes them the stars, not the conclusion. It It's time with them that that makes it valuable there's a playwright named anton chekhov i'm sure you've at least heard the name but what characterized his plays or at least the plays that i'm familiar with were they were just literally like slice of life plays there wasn't necessarily a story being told there's definitely a story of white christmas but in these plays it was just you took a segment out of these people's timeline and you watched them 
within that timeline. And that, that was the play. And I, there's a little bit of that going on here where the focus really is the characters because the story isn't overly complex because there's not a whole lot else extra going on. We're really able to just focus on the characters and enjoy how they foil against each other. Yes. One of my favorite authors is Jose Saramago. He is a Portuguese writer who writes a, a couple of different styles and he has this very unique narrator approach that highlights just the genericness of human life and kind of glorifies how generic people can be. And this movie has a story that allows each character's quirkiness to come out and be evident without being pushy or feeling like it has to serve an agenda. Like The characters look like they're living, breathing individuals instead of what we see in some more story-driven approaches in, in modern films where you almost get these cardboard cutout characters who are obviously just there to fill in a stopgap. And th this is very different than that. Yeah. And I like that you mentioned the character's sort of quirkiness, because I think something that's really unique to this film is how funny it is. And it's not like it's trying to necessarily be funny. There's the relationship between Phil and Bob that th their interplay is so great and authentic and Phil himself is just a funny character. And it's not that he has a shtick or anything. It's just he's a funny character. He's a funny person. Just like in real life, you have a friend who's a funny person, but he's not there just to be funny. He's he's a person who just happens to be funny, right? And that's how Phil feels in this movie, where he, he's somewhat of a goofball sometimes, but he, he feels like a real character. And there's so much of this movie that I spend laughing, but... Phil is still able to have those more grounded moments that progress the story a little bit further without having to make you laugh. Yeah, he's able to be funny. He is probably the, the major comedic relief of the movie, but he's allowed to have his serious uh, conversations with multiple characters, kind of being a sounding board, especially for uh, Bing Crosby's character, Bob. And you can relate to the characters and identify people in your life close to you who are similar because they are given well-rounded options to be funny individuals with certain characters and serious with others and then romantic with other characters and every character partially because it's limited there there aren't a whole lot of major characters that you're you're focusing on um, they're each given an opportunity to engage all the other characters in a, a diverse way, which is good, especially for these actors because they, they clearly have chemistry with one another, uh, Bob and, and um, Phil, and then particularly um, Bob and Betty uh, is it, you, you feel the relationships as if they were real. And I think part of that is that you, you project a little bit of your own relationships into those relationships and they become more convincing. Yeah, let, let's go ahead and move on to talking about characters specifically with that. So what do you have to say about Bing Crosby's character, Bob? Well, I'm, I'm a big Bing Crosby fan, um, not just because he's good looking, but because he's got a great voice. And I, I think Bob is a perfect balance between cynical, funny, and romantic. I mean, it's just perfect trifecta of this classic male movie character who isn't forced into 
even the the white knight role that he plays in this movie he doesn't really feel like he's just typecasted and driven there he's allowed to to branch out and i think he's my favorite character partially because i relate to him on the cynic side <laughs> so that's what i have to, on that yeah bob has or crosby specifically has this innate sort of likability from his smile to his these these piercingly blue eyes i, I mentioned the color earlier and the, the color really makes his eyes pop out even more than they would normally he has such blue eyes and they really sort of glare at you through the screen and i mean he's just got a great voice i've always loved bing crosby i love his christmas music i love his non-christmas music he he's just good and he, he proves that he can act here too i think he's a great relatable character like you said he's probably my favorite and he's stern and he's also sometimes overly blunt like the the whole everybody's got an angle line, right? I mean, he's just telling it how he is. That's that's how it is, and that's how he sees it, and so that's how he, what he's going to say about it. And aside from that, though, he's always warm-hearted, and he's just a genuinely good guy. No matter what Betty may think of him towards the, the end of the second act of the film, he is the good guy. He is doing the right thing. He's not trying to benefit off of somebody else's misfortune. He's just trying to do a good thing for a person who did a good thing for him in his life. And so I, I love watching his character just be a good guy and a likable guy, but also have his moments of, like you said, cynicism, sometimes being over blunt, but always just a good, likable character. Yeah. And the story itself gives him an opportunity to shoot looks at Phil and other characters that really play off Crosby's charm. And like you said, his eyes, there's a lot of facial expression and little nuanced things that he does when he's put into situations that he doesn't want to be in, which happen more than once in the movie, that really stand out. He sells them very well with his mannerisms and his his body language. Right, and there are two specific scenes that came to mind when you talked about that just now. The first was when him and Phil act the role of the sisters, and they're miming through the song, and at the end of the song, Bing Crosby is just about to lose it he he he's so close to breaking character and he's having so much fun in the role i i love that the ending of that song and then shortly thereafter when they're on the train they've met up with the sisters and they're sitting at the table and phil has already had his spiel about no we should go to vermont no we're going to new york we're, we should go to vermont two tickets to new york please and at the table the girls reveal that they are going to vermont and he just sort of shoots this look across the table to phil oh that's why you wanted to go to vermont i see it okay i get it and th yeah. those those two early scenes specifically there are many more like it but those two specifically stand out to me as just showing both the, the fun that crosby is having on stage and the the fun that his character experiences within the course of the film and the, the fun that we can identify with what about phil so Phil is the friend that I would not want to have that would annoy me to no end, which is why I relate to Bob. I mean, this is you're talking about like a go lucky guy. Everybody has a friend like this. Everyone wants to have a friend like this and doesn't want to have a friend like this. <laughs> and so I think he provides, as I already mentioned, the most comedic relief, not just in what he says, but in how the other characters relate to him not just his egging on of bob but also his his witty lines that kind of slide under when people don't interact with them he, he gets a, some good little one-liners in uh, very intelligent one-liners but then also his interaction with judy as a love interest is kind of unknowingly 
wooing her, but also intentionally wooing her just kind of reminds you of this individual who's flying by the seat of his pants, doesn't always know what he's doing or if it's going to turn out well. And he doesn't really mind that he doesn't know. It's a Life is an adventure and it's exciting for him. And I think that that is refreshing. It, it's unlike any of the other characters. I think he's the most unique character in the movie and that makes him enjoyable in, in almost every scene he's in. He's an opportunity seizer and he doesn't always think through the the decision before he jumps into the opportunity. Yeah. And that 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 contrasts him specifically with Bob who is very much a thinker and is trying to plan ahead and plan his next step, but Phil is like, "Oh, I want this to happen, so I'm going to do this." And then much to his chagrin, maybe shortly thereafter things go south for him, but hey, at least he he took the leap. And he's a fun character for that because he's impulsive and you don't really know how he's going to react. Yes, and without him, you wouldn't have that entire drag sequence, which is one of the highlights of the movie. So, Yeah, I, I love his goofiness and I love how he sort of gets all choked up uh, whenever he, he he gets nervous or anxious in a scene. So he'll stutter over his words or he'll, he'll say sir a whole bunch of times in the case of speaking with General Waverly. And then as he reaches the end of his little scene, he'll he'll sort of crack his voice. And it's always funny, no matter how how many times it happens. I always laugh when he cracks his voice because he's just feeling anxious in the moment. Yeah, the entire scene at the end, near the end of the movie where he is uh, faking an injury. (laughs) And if you if you listen and you're paying attention to the every single word he's saying, you end up just kind of laughing and shaking your head because it's intelligently written to be funny without being overtly just kind of slapstick or or pointedly funny. Um, The words he uses and, and the added sirs and his whole body language it's just it's great one line specifically in that scene that uh that always makes me laugh is the uh he says something to the effect of it's just a small internal muscular hemorrhage or something like that <laughs> yes like how many more words could we tack on to just make this seem ridiculous yeah it's great <laughs> yeah now what about betty or well, let's let's go back let's talk about judy real quick first because he's she's sort of like the female version of phil in a lot of ways though not quite as impulsive not quite as goofy but they, they do share many similar characteristics, and obviously they're paired up. I think her character is probably given the least um, time to develop of the main four. I mean, obviously, I believe Vera Ellen, particularly being used for dancing ability in a couple of the choreography scenes, and her relationship to Phil and her relationship to her sister seem very similar to me. In that she she is kind of just, I'm going to get what I want to get. And that aligns with a good relationship with her sister. And it um, aligns with pursuing Phil, who I don't always know is aware what's going on because of the way his character is. And so, you know, she's got one scene in particular where she's being very aggressive with Phil. And you see all of her character kind of right there in that scene of getting what she wants, being a little blunt and coy at the same time. And it, it, it's really the high mark for her character is when she's she's trying to convince Phil to propose to her. 
for starters, she is a fabulous dancer. I, I, I love all of her dance scenes, specifically the Abraham one, which that name isn't specifically mentioned in the film, but it's the one, the last dance scene, I think, with her wearing the yellow dress. I love that dancing. That's my favorite one in the film, I think. Both her and her sister, Betty, are strong female characters, but Judy is a little bit more willing to or inclined to act impulsively. And like I said, she's definitely a female version of Phil in this respect. She's she's kind of mischievous in that regard from the letter from her brother, quote unquote, in order to get the Wallace and Davis to come to their act in the first place. And the fake engagement halfway through the film where she's just trying to sort of nudge her sister along. She's almost manipulative in that way. Yeah, she's almost at least the way I understand it. She she's manipulating Phil and her sister at the same time, which is high marks for her attempting that. Definitely. And now for Betty herself, I mean, Rosemary Clooney is both gorgeous in looks and in voice. I can't think of a better female singer to pair with Bing Crosby because they they sort of really complement each other in that way. Their duets are really good from Count Your Blessings to White Christmas at the end. She's just wonderful in this role. And she's not interested in taking nonsense from anybody, even even if it's Bob who could, you know, further progress her career. He could make her famous if he wanted to. And she doesn't let that stop her. She's going to tell it like it is. And I, I really admire that about her character. Yeah, her song, and I guess I would call it even a solo, Love You Didn't Do Right By Me, is one of the few songs that I feel really kind of it doesn't drive the story, but it drives home the development of the story for her character. And it's one of the standout scenes of the entire movie because it gives her an opportunity with close up camera work because she is gorgeous, the opportunity for her voice to shine above everything else. But it really does kind of lay out her, as you've already mentioned, her no nonsense approach and yet her developing tenderness towards Bob, which she didn't expect, you know, the first time they meet, they're very happy to dwell on the fact that they're not going to see each other again. And you know, even from that point, that this is going to be a fun turn for both of their characters. And, and while Bob's is good as well, his affection for his friend Phil kind of already shows that he's a little bit of a softy. And for Betty, her movement towards Bob and her deep affection for him to be hurt by their misunderstanding really brings her character to full life, especially when when she starts singing about it. Right. And I, I think that scene in particular definitely does show development. Like you said, it shows that she is hurt by Bob, but it also shows because she actually tries to call the song off because she sees Bob in the audience right before she performs it. And she says, oh, you know, maybe I shouldn't do this. So it shows that she's in a way not vindictive. She was singing the song to express herself and express her feelings and her hurt in the moment. But when seeing Bob was there, she didn't really want to subject him to her negative feelings towards him, I should say. It's a dual purpose song there where, yes, it's showing she's hurt. She has moved on. She feels for this guy, but he hurt her. So she's letting him go. But at the same time, she doesn't want to be overly antagonistic towards him to his face. Yeah, exactly. And I love that in that same scene, she does show her soft side and she so shows her soft side elsewhere, too. She may be sort of strong willed. But she admits when she misjudges character, 
by coming back in order to perform with the show at the end of the film. And she, of course, shows tenderness towards her sister. After the fake engagement, she sits there crying in bed because, hey, that's sort of the end of this life that I've come to live and our partnership. And now it's time for me to move on on my own. And you see her crying in bed and sort of not replying to her sister who's trying to have a conversation with. She's hurt in that scene, too. So even though we do see her being sort of strong-willed and definitely no nonsense, we do see her tender side both in that scene where she's singing Love Didn't Do Right By Me and when she's laying in the bed crying after uh, learning that, hey, the act is over. Yeah, and I don't have anything to add to that. You hit it on the head. (laughs) What about last character, I think, General Waverly? So his character really is the linchpin for an important portion of the story. He kind of acts as bookends at the front where we get a rendition from Bing Crosby of White Christmas. And then he acts as kind of the culminating tie at the end as they provide a surprise for him, providing probably the most emotional moment of the movie in the honoring of him and his career. And I think that that provides a level of continuity to the movie that might otherwise be missing. But then his interaction with the characters, a little bit of like an under the skin probing, he almost seems to be, if there's a a meta character, he's that meta character who people can't quite fully pin down because he is just a little bit more of a character with regards to his being a commanding officer, and then his being a owner of a inn while serving it faithfully, and then being the person that ultimately everyone wants to respect and honor. He just seems to be that character that digs a little bit deeper in his interaction with everybody else. His character itself, I'm not sure, gets fleshed out as much as it could, but he provides a good foil to everybody. Right. I think you summed it up pretty well. Um, I, I really didn't have a whole lot to say about him specifically. I do think that seeing his the, the parallels from the beginning of the film where they're singing White Christmas and follow the old man wherever he wants to go uh, to the ending where the same thing happens. I do enjoy that sort of parallelism and seeing how he actually has a sort of individual moment with multiple characters. Probably all three, three of the main characters, with the exception being Judy. I don't know if they have a moment together, but I just love that he's a kind old soul. He's stern, but he's kind. He's like the ultimate nice general, right? Like a general has a duty to be stern to his troops and to make sure protocol is followed and stuff like that. But at the same time, he shows tenderness. He he almost a sort of fatherliness to his troops, and he he shows that he genuinely cares for them and for their well being. And so when you see him later in the film, after the start, you see him tending to the hotel and carrying firewood and on KP duty, you really sort of root for him in his misfortune because that really is the situation he's in right now. He's at a ski resort with no snow. So, I mean, what kind of position does that put him in? We root for him because he's just a likable character. He's a sweet character. And then seeing his response at the final scene where he's walked in, he's in uniform, and all of a sudden everybody stands up and applauds. And he just, there's just several seconds, almost half a minute probably, where he just stands there and sort of soaks in the applause. And you can see how it's emotionally affecting him. And I think that's just, like you said, one of the more emotional scenes of the film. And I, it works really, really well. 
Yes, it does. And I don't think it would work as well if he was just introduced as a character midway who was struggling tying him to Bob and Phil in the opening and, and seeing the care that he provides to his troops and his troops have for him establishes that very early on in a scene that could very easily have been rushed through or tossed aside. It, it's foundational to him having that final moment. I agree. And that, that sort of transitions well into the music of the film, because the first thing I want to mention is the rendition of white Christmas at the very start of the film. I don't think there's ever been a more solemn or emotional rendition of white Christmas than Bing Crosby singing at the start of the film amidst gunfire and bombs and explosions. You, you, they're in an active war zone and here he is standing on a stage singing white Christmas and everybody's got their head sort of bowed and they're sort of longingly staring out into the middle distance because hey, they miss their family. And dreaming of a white Christmas is just, man, I miss my home. I miss my family. I miss a place where things were just a little bit nicer. And wow, that that opening scene is just so powerful accompanied by that song. Yeah, my kids, uh, specifically our oldest, Kenzie, as that song was beginning and you know they have a couple sweeping scenes of the troops, very solemn, very sober. And she just asked, mom dad why why are they so sad and part of that's because she knows she's familiar with the song and i don't think she's fully grasped the the meaning of the words that are in the song and so in answering that for her you could just kind of see this wave of understanding finally on her face that it what it's not just a song that you know southerners sing because we're never going to have a white christmas but (laughs) in this context it was especially meaningful about not seeing family, maybe never seeing family again, never having a Christmas at home again, and White Christmas encapsulating all of that, all of that that wonderfulness of the Christmas experience. And that sets the tone for the entire movie. Even though the movie lightens up a little bit, it really gives an indication of where it's wanting to end up. Like you said, it, it's probably one of the best renditions of the song to at least experience once visually so that every time you hear the song, even other people's renditions of the song, it can be recalled. Context is king. Yeah. And so placing Bing Crosby on the stage in the middle of an active war zone and nobody sings a song better than Bing Crosby to begin with, but placing him specifically minimal accompaniment. I mean, he's, he's accompanied by a music box and that's it. And it, there's one moment where Phil actually has to sort of wind up the music box again midway through the song. But I'd never thought of White Christmas, the song specifically in that way before. I mean, like you mentioned, I'm from Texas. I don't see very many truly white Christmases. I've always just thought of it as a song about, hey, I want snow at Christmas. But this just brings so much more meaning to the song. And I, I really appreciate that meaning. Now, I don't know if I'm going to be picturing that opening scene when I hear the Drifters version in Home Alone, but <laughs> but aside from that, if I hear Bing Crosby singing this song, I'm always going to go back to that scene and just thinking about troops not being able to spend the holidays with their family. Yeah. And how how harrowing isn't the right word, but it sort of evokes the right emotional response. Harrowing that scene, that song can be when put in the proper context. Now, overall, the song list is just fantastic. Irving Berlin is truly prolific in his his songs, and 
in sort of preparing for this episode, writing down those few songs that I, I mentioned earlier, I didn't realize, truly realize how prolific Irving Berlin was, but he really has written all kinds of music, all kinds of genres, and every single one of his songs are put to good use in this film. Yeah, he knows how to write a song. Gotta give him that. The guy, <laughs> to, to sell it mildly, he clearly knows how to uh, to write a, a song. And, and even the, the tracks, I mean, not even including his whole career, which I'm familiar with because my wife just absolutely adores him. But as you mentioned, even within this um, this movie, the diversity of the tracks is pretty phenomenal. I'm not sure if he had any accompanying writers or if he was solely responsible for every single track but the mood of the songs is widely diverse i'm a big person for vocal timing and his vocal timing for enunciation and enumeration and finishing off of sentences is just absolutely um, wonderful count your blessings instead of sheep is just a great song period i really love gee i wish i was back in the army um, I think it's it's funny and humorous, but it, it completely shows off a, a creative spell. I think it, it's hard to make funny that that concept, but it it goes over really well. Yeah, I, I can't think of any f- songs in this movie that I just don't like. Yeah, there are a couple that are maybe slower that maybe don't capture my attention as much as others do. But overall, it all the music in here is quality, and all the singers are top notch. Unfortunately, Vera Ellen isn't a singer, so I don't think we actually hear her specifically sing in this film. But Rosemary Clooney, Bing Crosby, and even Danny Kaye. Maybe Danny Kaye doesn't have the same level of finesse as the other two, but all three of them are immensely talented, and all of their songs come across extremely beautifully. And aside from White Christmas, I think Count Your Blessings is probably my favorite. And I I also really like, uh, I I don't know the specific track title, but We'll Follow the Old Man Wherever He Wants to Go. I think it's just called The Old Man. So I I really like the song The Old Man as well. I think Vera does sing a little bit on Snow. I'm not sure if that counts as a song just because there's so little to it. I'd have to look at notes to see if she actually sang it or if someone dubbed over for her. But you're you're right. She she wasn't given many opportunities to, to shine in the singing department. But she makes up for it more than ever in her dancing. Definitely. In fact, something I learned just yesterday was the sister's song. Both parts in that song are sung by Rosemary Clooney, even though Vera Allen is moving her lips, of course. Both of the parts sung that we hear in the film are sung by Rosemary Clooney. Yes, I was familiar with that because my wife is a, a nerd and knew it. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else to say about the music? Um, No, other than, I mean, like, that it captivated my children and they were excited about the songs. And that, that says a lot about music in a time where music has been pushed back towards soundtracks and soundtracks are incredibly important in all movies, but it was nice to see the music take a front role and really excel, not just be a part of the movie, but truly add to the movie. I think about another one of my really uh, guilty favorites, um, Some Like It Hot, where the music's in there and it kind of develops the movie and it's kind of okay. This is completely different. The music 
takes over the movie whenever it's occurring and it does that in a good way. The last thing I would probably say about the music specifically is that this is a jukebox musical. This is one of the best examples of a jukebox musical because, you know, a lot of the times jukebox musicals like Across the Universe is a a recent example where they took Beatles songs and then they try and fit a story within those songs. And it, it doesn't entirely work. There are elements of that film that do work, but overall the story is kind of messy. And so I love that you know, most of these songs by Irving Berlin weren't written for White Christmas. In fact, White Christmas itself, the song, was originally heard in the film Holiday Inn starring Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire. And so I liked that they didn't try and create a story based around the songs. They made a story and then they fit the songs in where they thought it appropriate. And thankfully, Irving Berlin is sort of prolific enough that that wasn't too hard. He had a song just about for everything. Yeah, and it's a good testament to the movie that they weren't afraid to let a song just stand as a song. Right. Um, it, it didn't have to have some deep, meaningful tie-in or, you know, like across the universe, some important montage going on at the same time. You, you're just allowed to sit and listen to the music. And I think that the movie's setup of entertainers being the main characters supported that just out of the gate. Now, let's go ahead and move on to the sort of relevance of this film. Now, we already talked about how it's not overly complex. There's not a whole lot of incredibly deep meaning here, I, would, I wouldn't I would think. But there there are some takeaways. So what might one of those takeaways be for you? I think one of them is to kind of latch on to the beginning and end of the movie, the, the respect for the commander in general and the sense of honor and pride of serving under somebody and then in a real world experience serving somebody this idea of honor and respect being a motivating good thing that brings people together is an important theme in general but it's also what leads to the conflict the idea that um, Crosby's character Bob would be doing things for selfish reasons instead of thinking of others is what leads to the the only conflict of the movie. And so that concept of respecting and honoring is to me, the, the highest import of the movie. And I think going with that, it's important to realize that yes, in this context, it's military respect for commanding generals or what have you. I don't think that the message has to be exclusively applied to the military though. I think there's something to be said for respecting elders or respecting authority figures in general, whether it's military or not. Definitely finding respect for those who have served and treating them with kindness and not acting selfishly in their presence or whatever it may be, but just applying it to all walks of life. There are older people who deserve respect. There are younger people who deserve respect. Um, So just in general, treating each other with respect and with kindness and acting kindly without selfish motivations. Bob obviously talks about how everybody has an angle, but he sort of contradicts himself by saying, by going through the whole rest of the movie, you know, this, this stage act in Vermont wasn't a selfish act in the end. It was all about making General Waverly feel good, feel respected, and feel remembered. Nobody's forgotten about him just because the war's over and because everybody has moved on with their lives. Yeah, I agree. And I think also going along with treating each other with kindness is sort of just uh, don't assume. Talk to people. Communicate. 
because that, as you said, is sort of the main conflict of the film because Betty misunderstands or only hears part of the conversation that Bob was having with Ed Harrison. And so she assumes, she assumes that he is acting selfishly. And obviously that's not the case because we heard the whole conversation. She heard part of it. And so if you have a, uh, if you have any qualms with somebody, if you have any issues with somebody, talk with them about it. Don't just make assumptions and go off and do crazy things or just cut them out of your lives. Communicate and you will benefit from that. Yes, don't use phones to spy on people. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> a, a short moral takeaway because it leads to, it leads to conflict. Definitely. Um, do you have any other sort of major takeaways? I think that one of the kind of subversive elements is the importance of family because, you know, Phil's whole driving point in the movie is to get Bob a family. And it, there definitely is this sense of, well, he's just doing it because he makes a joke about wanting time to himself, have nine kids, spend five minutes with each kid, and I'll get 45 minutes of of a break from this business that he's brought Bob into and Bob's kind of gotten out of control. But he has this really witty sentence that I'm not going to be able to repeat. So I'm just paraphrasing, which is that he shouldn't wait to get a family to the point where there's not a family worth getting. And that is this kind of underlying friendship focus of he needs people in his life to center him and move him away from this obsession with with work and it, it's a part of the story that doesn't fully get developed um, Bob's obsession with work we see hints of it but it can kind of get lost that that's the real drive of the entire movie Phil launching them into all these silly situations is getting Bob a spouse um, who he can love and grow old with and share things together with. And so the conflict comes when you see he has found that and oh my goodness, he might lose it over a misunderstanding about who he is and what really matters to him. And he gets the opportunity to turn around and say, no, what really matters to me is respect, honor, love and relationships. And so I think that that's a, a general theme that is kind of in all the characters, but particularly in that uh, reconciliation of Bob and, and Betty. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that too much, but you're you're absolutely right. And I think it, it could pretty well be summed up as find someone you love more than your work, right? Find people you love more than your work, whether that's actual family, whether that's friendship family, and separate yourself from your work every now and then so that you can enjoy the time you spend with those people. The only other sort of takeaway I had for the film, and it's not necessarily a message from the film, but just the film overall Sometimes you just need a simple movie like this. It's it's fun, it's innocent, and it's just in the spirit of the season. And, you know, honestly, I think I could watch this any other time of year besides Christmas, and I could enjoy it just as much. I don't know if I would, because I have this sort of strict no Christmas music until after Thanksgiving policy. But the feel of the film and the spirit of the film definitely is something that I think I could always enjoy watching. And whether it's Christmas or not, just like popping it in and sitting down to watch it every now and then. Yeah. Especially on a, you know, one of those really weird days in Texas when you're like in June or July, because these do occur. I know and most people presume that it's just like a hundred degrees all the time, but sometimes <laughs> even, even into middle of June, we'll get a, 
a reasonably cold day for Texas weather. And I could definitely see that kind of Christmas in June. Oh my gosh, it's in the fifties. Let's put on white Christmas kind of feeling (laughs) in our house. And you're right. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be out of context at all. No, it's just a a good feel good movie. And with that, do you have any sort of final wrap up thoughts about the movie? None other than just encourage everybody to watch it if they somehow haven't. I mean, it's just like you said, it's so simple you're not sitting there trying to to capture some complex plot and yet it's very intelligently written and you're stimulated and it it's got a good just general personification of all the characters and you feel good watching it, it it's a well done feel good movie it's a true christmas classic it's right up there with it's a wonderful life and the original miracle on 34th street It's a must watch for me every year, at least once, and usually even more than just once. I I don't really get tired of this film because it's not entirely uh, breakneck pace story driven. And it does take the time to slow down and put on a dance number and sit down and let's sing a song and not really progressive plot. I, I think you can just sit down and put it on the background and enjoy just the feeling of Christmas and you don't really have to pay that much attention to it every time you watch it, but you can watch it multiple times and I don't think you'd get tired of it. I agree. And with that, I suppose that wraps up the official 20th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much, Joshua, for joining me. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Chad. Contact for the show is on facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Joshua, where can people find you online? Um, you can find me on Facebook, the Tory Gazette, or my personal account, Joshua Tory. I'm on Twitter at Ben Noon. That's B-E-N-N-U-W-N. Um, and then the ToryGazette.com. Great. The best place to find me is on Twitter at Chadadada. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. And on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And all of the show notes, all the contact information to find me and to find the show and to find Joshua, of course, can be found on the website at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Once again, thank you so much, Joshua, for joining me. I've enjoyed having you and talking to you on the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Episode 20. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with Episode 21. Have fun and celebrate movies. (laughs) 